Amen. Well, hey, we're so glad that you're here with us today. My name is Jonathan, and uh, that is something we pray for you. When we pray for you, we pray that God would root you in his love and set you free from fear during this season and during every season. So we're glad you're here worshiping with us. I'm excited about today, what we're kicking off today, but I want to remind you just of a couple things. If you have kids who worship with us or students, those two ministries are getting going again. Uh, So there's information online you need to check out. Uh, Also online, there's a bunch of men's events and some women's events that are happening and ways to get connected. There's uh, something we're doing called the uh, Backpack Bash, uh, which is not as aggressive as it sounds. It's partnering with families in need here in the Springs as they go back to school. We're doing that through Cuz I Love You. So there's all sorts of info online that you can connect to and get involved here. But today we are launching something that I've been excited about for a while. uh, We're calling it the Armchair Expert Series. And what we believe and what we're really passionate about is this, that every believer has the Holy Spirit. And because that's true, we believe what church is about and when church is best is those moments when it is not dominated by one voice, but when we're listening to each other, we're looking for what the Holy Spirit is saying through one another, and we're also giving voice to what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. And so uh, this summer, to kind of embody that, we've uh, come up with this idea for a series where we've invited a handful of folks to come and just preach and to share what they have. And each of these people are full of wisdom, full of insight, and uh, we're trusting this, that the Holy Spirit is going to speak to us as a church community through their words. So uh, I'm really excited about it and couldn't be more excited about who is kicking it off. This is our very own Jerry White here. Can we welcome Jerry to the stage? Yes. Thank you. Jerry is a perfect person to start this series. He has been in our church for many, many years. And uh, if you know Jerry, you know this. He is an author. He has a, a PhD in astronautics. He's a retired major general from the U.S. Air Force. And uh, in his second career, he was the international president for the Navigators, which is a, a big ministry here in town. And uh, just has had a very colorful life. But I think more important for us is he and his wife Mary and their family have been worshiping at this church for many, many years, and he has been this voice of wisdom and grace, both behind the scenes and in front, you know, sometimes leading, but uh, sometimes just just loving on us who get to lead this place. I've been here 16 years, and in that time, Jerry has just been so kind and encouraging uh, throughout all of uh, those years. So we're, we're really glad to have you with Great. us. And I want to ask, I, I, I say many years, it's been a few years that you and Mary have been here. How many years? Five, zero. 50 years we've had this as our church home. That is a long time. You've seen a lot in these years. You've seen me make all sorts of mistakes, and you've seen a lot of other people come and go. That's right. right. It's been a lot of changes, wonderful changes, great people, and great teaching. We first started coming here when our kids were small, and we were teaching at the Air Force Academy. Yeah. So. Well, I, I love Jerry's wisdom and thoughtfulness. I want to ask this question because I think you have some insight to share with us. When you have seen us as a church, us as the church, really thriving, really flourishing with what God has called us right. to, what has been true in those times, as you've observed, that just are real central to that thriving for us as the church? Well, the church to thrive, I think there are several things that are absolutely necessary. But the, for me... The primary thing is that the 
the solid teaching that comes out of Scripture, Jonathan. Yeah. If we don't ground what we're doing in the Scriptures, what are we doing? Just talking to social issues or yeah. something. So the solid teaching from the Word, and we've always had that. The second is the development of relationships. And, and I do hope our COVID thing ends soon. Yeah. Because being together and being together in one place to have coffee, to chat, but to get to know one another, both here and in our small groups, without the friendships and the relationships and the connections, the community, that's what we really need, and that's important. The third thing, it's a ministry to our family. Yeah. I mean, we came here first because it was a ministry to our family, yeah. and our kids needed what was here. Yeah. And so whether they're teens or little kids, whatever it is, it's always been a minister, ministry to our family personally. Yeah. So those three things. Uh, so simple, but I, I mean, that's the thing is sometimes we can overthink it. I think that there are some right. simple things that God calls us to again and again. That's great. Um, now, I have to ask about this because I'm fascinated. You've had two very different careers, or to right. my eyes, they appear very different, but there may be a lot of overlap. And I guess, you know, we could talk for hours about them, but that was one thing I thought I'd just ask is, how have you seen God connect th this military career on one hand and then a ministry career on the other? Right. Ha has, have those seemed connected to you, or have they been like two separate things? And if there is a connection there, what is that? Well, there is a connection. In one sense, it's the same world, but in another sense, they're different. Yeah. You know, so we spent almost 14 years on active duty with the Air Force, and then another 24 years in the reserve capacity uh, with the Air Force Reserves, and then for almost 19 years of leading the navigators. Uh, there were similarities and there were differences. First of all, the similarities were that it's people. It's right. always people. Yeah. It's connections. and and it's vision. Yeah. You know, in the Air Force, and in, particularly in the space world, we have a vision. But also in our ministry lives, our church lives, we have a vision. So they're connected in that the calling is essentially the same, but just a different context. And of huh. course, that's what I'm going to talk about today. So more to come. Yeah. Well, I, I love your wisdom. I could ask you questions all day, but I, I think better than that would be to just uh, hear what God has laid on your heart for us. And so I want to pray for us, and then I'm going to get off the stage and Good. hand it over to you, Jerry. Um, Lord, we come before you today trusting this, that you want to speak to us uh, really every day of our life, and you want to speak to us today. So God, open our hearts and our minds to hear what you would say to us uh, through Jerry Lord, we are so thankful for Jerry and for his family, for the wisdom, the grace, uh, the journey that you have had him on in his life. Uh, give him wisdom as he leads us. In your name I pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, Thank Jerry. You. Well, good morning to all of you. You know, I'm so glad that at least some of us can be getting together here to, in the auditorium and in other places. Um, but I do have to start with an apology in that I haven't fitted in with the, the norm, which seems to be to grow a beard, to have a sartorial, you know, Jonathan with his new beard. But I do clearly remember back when I was in the Air Force, on, I was on leave for 30 days 
and I decided I'm going to grow a mustache. And I did. But then when I came back to cut it down to be regulation size, you know, to the end of your, of your lips, um, Mary said, basically, you look like Charlie Chaplin, that old comedian, or someone else, and got me to shave it off very, very quickly. Now, I could be like General Robin Olds, who, when he came to be Commandant of the Air Force Academy, defied all regulations and had a handlebar mustache. But you know, this is our home church. Uh, we've been here a long time. We've been a part of its ups and downs. And what a blessing to have had Thomas here for 10 years. And I wish I had been uh, here last week when we said goodbye out in the hot sun. I was up in the mountains watching it online. And, and one thing that COVID has done, it's um, allowed me to go down to Memorial Park on Sunday mornings and play three-wall handball. Now, uh, so it's going to really mess me up once we get back into the swing of things, and, and some of my friends are down there this morning. You know, I'd love to comment on a lot of things that are going on in our nation today, but I can only do so much in a given time, and I'm going to leave that for others who speak and who can do it much better than I to talk about the current events. But I would like to address another key topic. You know, there are two events that are going to be etched in our memories for our entire life. The first was 9-11-2001, when the planes hit the Trade Center in New York and the Pentagon and the one that went down in Pennsylvania. We'll all remember where we were. I was at the Pentagon at that time. In fact, the plane flew right over us and into the, into the Pentagon. And I remember we were totally out of touch. Everybody in the church here was praying for us because Mary had called and said, Jerry's at the Pentagon. I was actually just outside the Pentagon. And uh, then the next Sunday we came and we had a special prayer service here in this auditorium, which was extremely uh, meaningful. But the other event is COVID-19 in 2020. It's created far more economic chaos than the 9-11 did, and we don't know how long it will go on. It affects us all, but it especially has impacted how we work and if we work. So suppose you came into your job, your workplace one day, not with COVID being around, and the person says, well, I'm sorry. Your boss says, I'm sorry. I have to tell you that this is your last day. We just don't have a job for you anymore. And he or she goes on to say something like, well, we're downsizing, we're adjusting to COVID, or we're right-sizing. Whatever you call it, you no longer have work. And there's panic, there's anxiety, there's some anger and all are mixed in with the new reality. In England, they have a term for it called being made redundant. Kind of soft and nice, isn't it? But it's the same thing. You're without a job, and no job, no income. But then, even if you have a job, and a good job, it may not be ideal. And all of us struggle to some degree in our jobs. I've struggled with all of my jobs, 
There are things that I haven't liked, things even leading the navigators. Half of it was not stuff that was right down my alley of skills and gifts, and I probably didn't enjoy as much. The other half was great. And that's the way it is in most jobs. And, but when you're at work, you finally start asking, is this really important? Is this all there is to life? And when you no longer have a job, you realize how key it is to your survival, to your ego, your self-image, your emotional well-being. I can't help but reflect on this COVID-induced work from home. Yes, it certainly is possible, but for many people, it's not possible. The restaurant workers, the transportation industry, the retail stores, people can't work from home. When, they, when there's no work at their place, they have no place to go. And you realize that in countries around the world, and as I connect around the world with people, I find out they have no economic backdrop. They have no safety net. They have no unemployment insurance. And they have no work and ultimately no food. And they run out of food within a week. And so worldwide, it's been said that there are going to be more children without food than any time in the past couple decades just simply because of the impact of COVID. But even when we have a job, it's not always fulfilling or easy. I can't help but remember my stepfather, who was a truck driver in Spokane, Washington, around the city, tossing and delivering freight. And he was a hard worker, and he never complained one bit. And my natural father, whom I did not meet, until I was 13 years old, who lived here in Colorado. He was a mechanic in Longmont, Colorado. And he, he worked at that his entire life. But he was appalled at how little I knew and how my lack of skill with auto repairs or anything mechanical. And then there was my grandfather with whom I grew up with my mother until I was eight years old and my mother remarried. He was a laborer who did custom threshing, painted houses and barns. He butchered hogs. He was a laboring man on an Iowa farm community. And so my whole background has been with people who were ordinary workers in a very ordinary life. When I went to college and stepped out of that particular laboring force and went into a whole different way of earning a living, it was a bit of a shock to my system. So today, I would like to pose one question in two words, and these are, why work? Why work? Let me share a little bit of my story. I came to Christ through the ministry of an ordinary businessman, Bob Shepler, in Spokane, Washington. And here in this slide, you see me in the dark coat in the center pretending to push a log. Bob is there on the left, and he was just an ordinary business guy who had a bunch of us wild kids, and he ministered to us. I worked for him in his business, and he taught me how to work, how to think, 
and particularly how to become committed to Christ. And that shaped me. It was through Bob that I came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and committed my life to him. And it has changed me forever. By the way, Bob stayed in my life for his entire life until the day he died. He was faithful to me, he not only discipled me, but he walked with me through life. Now when I think of what does it take to survive in life, and I'm not going to go into Maslow's hierarchy of needs, though it's related a bit to that, but I'd like to share with you that to survive we need four things. First of all, we need to eat, sleep, work, and relate. We eat to put food in us. If we don't have it, we die. We sleep. Without sleep, we become disoriented and ill. And then we need to work to meet needs, to make money. Whether we're building software or selling insurance, it's necessary to work to live. And then to relate. Relationships are the stuff of which life is made. Family, friends, and, and community. Without relationships, we shrivel up and die. But let's just spend the time today talking about if we did not have work, then what would happen? We'd lose motivation, we'd lose our dignity, we'd lose our identity and our ability to meet our family's needs. So I'd like to just ask a question. Now, those of you who are watching online, raise your hands if you want. But those who are here in the auditorium, I'd like to ask you this. How many of you teach or taught your children to work, doing chores, washing dishes, and so forth? Can I see your hands? Sure you did. I did too. But why, did, why do we do this? Why did we do this? It's one of the most fundamental ideas that we want to communicate to our children, to work and even to earn some money. Now, I pay my grandchildren exorbitant amounts of money for mowing my postage stamp-sized lawn. Now, if I go out there, I can wind that mower up and I can whiz around in about 15 minutes. But when, when my grandsons over the years, and even granddaughters, have come to mow my lawn, they learn to work, they learn to do it well, they learn to edge it, they learn how to do it well for us, and they earn some money. It's a key thing we try to teach them. Now to a key question. Two questions. Do we work to live, or do we live to work? We all know the story of, of workaholics and people who have neglected their family, and I've been in that spot myself before. But then you ask, does work have meaning? As a follower of Jesus, does it have more meaning than before? Is it more or less meaningful? And you could say, well, you know, it's all going to burn, and it doesn't matter. Or you could quote that scripture verse that says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But let's look and examine what the scripture actually says on the issue of work. So if you have your Bibles, wherever you are, if you could turn to 
2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, starting in verse 6. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. Very interesting, because some could think of Paul roaring into town, sharing the gospel. Here's a scammer. Here's a TV preacher trying to get your money, or whatever it is. But he said, we didn't do that. He says, on the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, in other words, he's saying, it's okay for those who minister the word to receive money from it, to be a missionary, to be a pastor, whatever it would be. But he said, but we did it this way in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy, they are busybodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Okay, here's Paul, the great apostle of the New Testament the super apostle, the theologian who writes of grace and justification and writes Romans and Galatians and all of those theological works, here he is getting right down to the mundane issues of life. Work, eating, interacting with each other. So here's the summary of his teaching. He says, don't be idle or lazy. Why? He said, I did it so that I would set a pattern for you, an example. And he says, some hard teaching, by the way, no work, nor no eat. That's hard. And it's hard how to apply in our constant current society, for sure. He says, settle down, work, eat and do good. Some incredible practical teaching and theology. How was this? Why did he do this? Well, let's go back a little bit into the history of Thessalonica. Thessalonica was the capital of first century Macedonia. It's called, now called the city of Solonica, S-O-L-O-N-I-K-A. Solonica, so Paul, Silas, and Timothy visited this city on his second missionary journey. Paul preached in the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue, for three Sabbaths. That means that he was there a maximum of four weeks. Can you imagine establishing a church in four weeks of time? 
Then the Jewish community attacked the home of Paul's host, Jason, claiming that he had lodged those who, according to Acts 17, quote, have turned the world upside down in three weeks, by the way. Amazing. And that they had broken Caesar's laws in declaring that Jesus was to be another king. So Paul and Silas had to leave the city, probably to protect the peace and to protect Jason. And some converts in this city were from a higher class. Some, but most probably, were lower class working families like us. And they were persecuted for their faith. And apparently, there was some conflict over idleness and the necessity of work. After all, Paul, if, if you preached, Jesus is going to come back at any time, why should we work? And so I think this is the context that he is building on. And of course, he builds it on instruction in his first letter to the Thessalonians, and we read from 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. So here's the deal. We're to work to win the respect of outsiders, of those who don't know Christ, and we're not to be dependent on other people. So you say, where did Paul get those ideas? How did he come to that conclusion? Well, I believe he got it from his extensive study of the Old Testament. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee. He'd been trained. He was a scholar. He knew the law. And, and so he would have looked back to Genesis, where in Genesis 1, it says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This is what we sometimes refer to as the creation mandate. That is, man is to come to work, to make his living with all that God has provided in this world. But then in Genesis 2, in Genesis 2.15, it says this, The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, and to take care of it. So the first thing God gave man to do was to work. The Garden of Eden was not a Disneyland. It wasn't a place of bananas and kindles and eating, just rocking away and living a good life. God says, you do work. This was, by the way, even before he had created Eve. And so then when Eve came on the scene, God instituted the second command to marry and raise children. So the first two institutions that God brought into being 
before sin entered the world was work and marriage. And then throughout the Old Testament, Paul would have known this, that there was the honoring of men and women of skill and talent in every arena of art, work, and life. Now, you remember, Paul had a profession. He was a tent maker. He was a builder of shelters. And he knew how to do that. So he had been trained not only as a Pharisee, but as a worker. But you would see in Proverbs 22:29, do you see a man skilled in his work? He will serve before kings. He will not serve before obscure men. So it was these skilled men and women who built the tabernacle, they built the temple, they built the palaces, they built the cities, they built the water systems. Last fall when I visited Israel, and in Jerusalem there's Hezekiah's Tunnel, which was a water system that was built to serve the city. And it was, it's very long, and they started at two ends and met in the middle and missed by only about two or three feet. So you come to the middle of Hezekiah's tunnel, and you have to take a little bit of a jog. But that was creative. And as you look through the Old Testament again and again and again, you find skilled, gifted men, from Joseph to Daniel, and from Noah to David and Solomon. In Exodus 36, it says, Now, Bezalel and Ohileb, that's probably not how to pronounce it, but I'll go with that, and every skillful person in whom the Lord has put skill and understanding to know how to perform all the work in the construction of the sanctuary shall perform in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And in another place, he talks about stone cutters, masons of stone, carpenters, all men who are skillful in every kind of work. Did you get that? Every kind of work. So what do we discover? We discover that in God's work, all legitimate work is holy. God calls us to our work. If I were teaching a class at the academy and was going to put something on the board and said, this is going to be on the test, and I stamped my foot and I said, remember this. This is to remember. All legitimate work is holy. God calls us to our work. Our work. He prepares us for our work. He equips us with skill and motivation and talent. So in answer to the question that I posed at the beginning of this time, why work? Here is why we work. To put bread on the table, to provide for the needs of our family, to use our gifts and skills, that motivates us. You know, I feel good when I am doing something that I am skilled at. And by the way, in this area of skill, I'm always amazed at people who have skills that I don't have. And I watch them do their work and I just marvel that they have learned to do that and that ability. So God gives you gifts 
He gives you talents, he gives you skills that you are supposed to use and enjoy. But the third thing is to contribute to society. The fourth is work as a calling and we're to be salt and light. But I'd like to go back to the contribute to society for a bit. Let's suppose you go to Safeway or King Supers and buy a can of beans. Now, how did that can of beans get there? Well, there was a farmer who raised it. There were people who provided the fertilizer. Someone built the tractors to cultivate the fields. The farmer went and harvested. He hauled it off to a, a grain elevator or some kind of a shipping point, like in my little hometown of Garden City, Iowa, where all my cousins and uncles have run the grain elevator there. And then someone takes that grain or those beans and takes them to a processing plant. At the processing plant, they boil it, they work it, they do whatever they do to make it edible. And then they put it in a can. Then they put it on a truck and a truck comes to Colorado Springs to a central distribution center. Somebody else loads those beans into that truck and takes it to Safeway, brings it in the back door, and then someone has to go out and take it out of the boxes and stock it, and then you come in finally and buy it. That all contributes to society. And every person along the way is called by God to contribute and do that piece, to contribute to the ongoing of our society. And you could do that in every way from, from computers to building homes, whatever it may be, there's an entire process of skilled people and some unskilled people, that is ordinary laborers, who make that happen. But let's talk about being salt and light. Let's go to Matthew 5, 13 through 16. And here it says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds or good works and praise your Father in heaven. The teaching here is that we are the presence of Jesus in the midst of evil. And the gospel is reflected by how we work, how we live, how we treat our family, and how we live out our priorities. It's in the context of work and neighborhood and community that we are salt and we are light. So we often say, be salt and light. It has to taste good and it has to give light. In other words, it has to be seen, known, and tasted. And that's you. And it's me in the midst of where we live and work. Now let me reflect a bit on how that worked out in my personal life. Early in my career, I worked as a mission controller at Cape Canaveral. I'm the young guy there in the, in the back, 24 years old, 
It was an exciting time in the early 60s with the Mercury and Gemini flights. And the senior controllers, of course, worked on those manned flights, but I worked on many others. And up to that point, I'd intended to leave the Air Force and go back to work at Boeing Aircraft Company in Seattle. But while I was at the Cape, during the time when this picture was taken, God clearly spoke to me and said that I should, number one, stay in the Air Force, go get a master's degree, come to Colorado Springs and teach at the Air Force Academy, and, and start getting some training from the navigators and learn how to reach out to students. All that it, God gave me over a period of a week or two. But I still remember when it began to be sown in my mind. And it was then that I started coming to the full realization that God wanted me to be a witness inside my profession. And by the way, down at the Cape, I was just a little cog in a huge enterprise. Recently, I've been listening to a book called Apollo on the, all of the Apollo missions. With, and by the way, for an engineer, you would love it. If you are an engineer, you'll probably fall asleep because it gives all the details, all the problems, all the personalities, all of the things that went in to putting man on the moon by the end of the 60s. For me, it was just fulfilling to be a small part. But all I saw was my little part. When I read this book, I had no idea of all the conflict and all the discussions that were going on at the higher levels. Then through a series of miracles, I did get to the Air Force Academy, teaching in the Department of Astronautics, and to help begin not only teaching, but starting our navigator ministry at the Air Force Academy, seeing dozens upon dozens of cadets come to Christ. The young man in the middle is named Butch Zent. I'm still in touch with Buddy Butch. He retired as a colonel and is down in Florida. So God gave us something to do, but he also gave us something far more significant. I don't know about more significant, but, uh, but it's more significant in the eyes of the world that while I was at the academy, I came to co-author a textbook on astrodynamics. And today, that's my calling card amongst my Air Force friends. If you go out to Shriver or to Peterson Air Force Base or to Cheyenne Mountain, you'll see a, a copy of that book on their desk. That's how I'm knowing. That's my entree into my friendships and the world of the Air Force and space today. It's not because I led the navigators. They, most of them don't even know what the navigators are. But this is my calling card. And so what a blessing to have had a part in that. And by the way, there are a number of folks in our church here at Pulpit Rock who were my co-workers during those times. Don Meyer and, and, and uh, Roger Nealon was in the department with me and Ken Kraus and uh, Jewel Arata. Jewel and, and her husband, Paul Arata, and, and their children were our duplex neighbors at the Air Force Academy. And I remember reading a little story. By the way, you, you live in these military housing, these duplexes, the thin walls, you can hear everything, you can hear people talking. 
I remember the, uh, a little note by a woman by the name of Gail Gridley. She says, as a young married couple, my husband and I lived in a cheap housing complex near the base. Our chief complaint was that the walls were paper thin and we had no privacy. She said, this became painfully obvious one morning when he was upstairs on, and in the bathroom. I was downstairs on the telephone and she heard the doorbell ring. She went to the door and the neighbor said, uh, here's a roll of toilet paper. Your husband's yelling, been yelling for it for 15 minutes. <laughs> and all of us can remember that if you've lived in in housing situations uh, like that. Now, for those of you who know me, you know I play handball. And I, I couldn't help but mention handball and being a witness with my non-believing friends. Here are two guys playing in the last uh, world championships that I was at. And I played uh, both of them. The one in the back, I actually... Uh, beat in a doubles. He's beat me every other time, but finally one time beat him. And while I was there, I met Vic Deluzio. He's an Australian and a world champion. Uh, Vic has come to faith as I've interacted with him through the years. He's still a work in progress, just like we are, but we've become close friends. But here's what I want to point out. Each of these are the natural contexts of my work and my life. And they've caused me to become convinced that there is no such thing as a higher calling to full-time vocational ministry. Even though I did go into vocational ministry with the Navigators, I still kept my identity with the Air Force. So here is the second foot stomper in this little talk today. There is no such thing as a higher calling. We are all equal in our calling. Now, let me tell you a story. In 2010, in my involvement with the Lausanne Congress on World Evangelism, we had a huge convention. 4,000 people from all over the world, missionaries, pastors, teachers, seminary people. But as part of the organizing, I'd insisted that we have at least 10% of the attendees who are ordinary laymen. That is, they get their check from a secular source. So we had at least 400 of those out of the 4,000. And I was helping in a series of seminars on the workplace. And so the first session, we had 800 people in, it's not a workshop, by the way, but it was a, a big auditorium, and, and I was on a panel. And so when my turn came to say a few words, I said, I'd like to take a little survey. And now remember, these are people from all walks of life, from all over the world. So I said, how many of you came to know Christ personally through a mass evangelist like a Billy Graham or Louise Palau or some of the Asian or African evangelists. About eight or ten people raised their hand. And I said, okay, how many of you came to know Christ through a pastor, missionary, or some full-time Christian worker? 
and about 20 people or so raised their hand. And then I said, how many of you came to faith through a friend, a coworker, or a family member, and just about everybody's hands went up? So I said, I don't really need to say anything more about the workplace. And who does evangelism? Who does the work of the gospel? It's the ordinary person in the ordinary walks of life. It's the person who's next to you in your workplace. It's the people who are your neighbors. It's your family. And by the way, I have seen my family come to Christ. My cousins, my natural father and his wife came to Christ when we moved here to Colorado. And through all of those relationships, just as an ordinary worker, are people who do the work of the ministry. Now, don't get me wrong. We need pastors. We need evangelists. We need missionaries. We need navigator staff. I spent my 19 years in the navigator as leader of the navigators recruiting staff for the navigators. But we also realize that that grouping of people is only about less than 1% of the world of the Christians. But 99% are ordinary people like you and like me. And so the genius of the gospel is that it is communicated and promulgated by ordinary people living their ordinary lives. But to do that, by the way, we need to know Christ personally, deeply. And we need to be discipled. We need to grow in our faith. So when I came out here to Colorado to teach at the Air Force Academy, one of my goals was to really get help in my own personal life, to go deep in the scriptures. And I got that. So I'd like to conclude with Colossians 3.23, which many of you know. It says, work hard and cheerfully in all you do. Uh, pardon me. Wh whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. I was quoting the Living Bible. In the Living Bible, it says this. Work hard and cheerfully at all you do, just as though you were working for the Lord and not merely for your masters. So the message here is that we're called by God. We're to work in the work God has given us, especially in our, the jobs and the profession God has given us. We're to be his hands and his feet, and we're to be salt and light, a witness for Jesus Christ. So let's be committed to live out that calling in the workplace. Whether you're a construction worker or a lawyer, a programmer or a pastor, or a teacher, or a custodian, or a stay-at-home mom, or a PhD, or someone with a GED from high school. God calls all of us. God calls you with your gifts and your talents to be in the workplace. So why work? It's because it is a call of God. It is a higher calling. In fact, it is the only higher calling. And in its context is how we share our faith, but also have fulfillment and support our family.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for helping us to understand that you have called us to a place and to a work. You've put us in context with the lives of men and women who need to know you, who need to know the gospel of Jesus Christ, who need to know the Savior who died for us, and they will see it in us. Help us, Lord, to be that salt and that light, to be that connector and the helper of the people around us. Help us in our ordinary walk of life to know that we are fully called by you. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.